This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Understanding Cancer Podcast, a series of key conversations that bring together all you need to know about cancer, empowering you with information and knowledge. This 10 podcast series is brought to you by Discovery. My name is Sonia Booth. Each week, we chat to some of the country's foremost experts in the fields of health and wellness for cancer prevention, as well as in cancer treatment. We are bringing you fascinating insights relevant to every person out there. This 10th and final episode focuses on cancer as a chronic condition and palliative care. Today, I am in conversation with Dr. Margie Fenter, a palliative oncologist who is on the line with us from Cape Town. In studio with me are Dr. Nosisa Matsiliza, who works in private practice in palliative medicine, and Dr. Sandy Lemshongo, a clinical specialist at Discovery Health. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. The first place to begin would be explaining to me what palliative care is. Dr. Matsiliza, will you take that first question for us? The World Health Organization has a, a definition that is used throughout the world. It's quite a, a complicated definition, but if for, for the purpose of our discussion today, we can try and simplify that we will define it as an approach that improves the quality of life for the patient and their families. And how we do this, we manage the symptoms in patients with serious illness. So the key concept here is the improvement in the quality of life of the patient. So these symptoms can be physical symptoms, for example, pain. They can be psychosocial symptoms, and they can also be spiritual symptoms. So as you can see, we're focusing on improving quality of life of the patient and family. But our symptoms are quite comprehensive. It's not only just medical symptoms as we define pain, um, vomiting, um, etc. But encompass psychosocial and spiritual. That requires a team approach. The stage at which palliation then begins is going to differ according to the impact these symptoms have on the quality of life. And, and, and that will obviously also determine whether you are supported or taken care of at home or in a hospice. That will definitely impact on the place of care. So because we're saying quality of life and we're talking about symptoms, it doesn't matter at which stage the illness is, whether those symptoms require hospitalization, whether those symptoms require home care, whether those symptoms require other facilities that can support that kind of patient. I think um, to Dr. Nasisa's point, it's quite essential to understand that the continuum um, of symptoms varies according to the clinical condition that the patient presents in. So the setting of care is absolutely determined by 
how the clinical manifest- manifestation in all of the uh, strata that Dr. Nosisa described, be it psychosocial, be it biological, meaning physical, or be it, um, you know, the spiritual. So to, an ex- to the extent possible, the setting of care does not determine if it, sh- if it is palliative care or not. It is determined by the needs of the individual patient. So, uh, and what we ought to be cognizant of is then making an allowance for patient preferences um, to be supported ind- independently of the setting of care, be it in a facility, community-based, or at home. And I think what we've tried to capture and how we've tried to really work together is with the clinician is with the clinicians is to really understand those nuances and make sure that um, those services are appropriate for the requirements of the patients. Could I chip in there, please? <laughs> I think an important uh, uh, comment to make is that that palliative care can be offered alongside treatments that are still aimed at um alternating the course of the disease. So you can have, and ideally probably should have, uh, palliative care input along with your chemotherapy and radiotherapy um, to ensure that even during treatments, your quality of life is uh, remains as optimal as possible. As as we started off by saying, it it's it's an approach that improves quality of life. And we're guided by the symptoms um, that manifest whatever the diagnosis of the patient is in, in oncology, I mean, whatever type of cancer. So we are guided by the symptoms, and these symptoms can manifest right at the beginning, um, at the time of diagnosis of the patient, where it is appropriate to give that patient chemotherapy, whether that, that, that modality is designed to cure, is aimed at curing, or whether it is aimed at alleviating the symptoms and reducing burden of disease, palliative care comes in because it is looking at improving quality of life of that patient. So correctly, as Maggie says, alongside curative or other uh, other aims of of, uh, of of management, of treatment of that particular patient, chemotherapy or radiation. We can also have um, surgery as, as a palliative modality um, as well. And, and when do you reach a point of specialists where you now have determined uh, that there is no more or not much else that you can do for a patient? Is it when you've exhausted all treatment methods or medication methods? At what point uh, do you decide palliation is the only option. So if I can, if I can take that, I think the notion that, um, one should offer palliative care as an alternative to treatment is what is the myth that has to be debunked quite significantly because, um, and it's not only just, you know, lay people who believe that even, um, I think our clinical colleagues, uh, in a lot of settings or in a lot of situations still believe that they will offer treatment for whatever the illness is and palliative care. And I think maybe uh, I'm going to sidestep a little bit, but come back to the main conversation. It's not only offered in cancer care. 
So, uh, and Dr. Nosisa highlighted this point in serious illness. So that's what we're really talking about. But particularly in, in cancer care, we have to debunk the myth that palliative care is an option once there is no longer an option to continue with active treatment, be it aiming for a cure or even, um, aiming for palliative chemo, palliative um, radiotherapy and so on and so forth. So if we are really understanding as per the definition that was uh, uh, given by Dr. Nosisa earlier is that it has to be quality of life support independent of the stage of the, of the disease. And I think Dr. Maggi highlights the same thing as well. What we ought to expect is that palliative care ought to be offered side by side. So what will vary and what will change is the intensity and the type of care depending on how the patient progresses. So one would think that as the disease becomes more advanced and uh, more debilitating and so on, uh, the patient will require probably more advanced care, and that's when maybe you may start thinking about um, a hospice care. But if you think about something as simple, and I'm going to use a very simple example um, that was cited by Dr. Nasisa, pain management. On day one, if you have cancer, one expects that you will have pain. If you talk about nausea management and vomiting, chemotherapy, irrespective of the indication, is it for a cure or for um, for just adjuvant treatment, it will have uh, symptoms that ought to be managed. And part of palliative care is understanding that, that in the journey throughout your treatment, side by side, should be palliative care services that are in, aimed at improving your quality of life. And so, as maybe to answer your question directly, Sonia, then perhaps maybe how I would uh, frame it um, is that the intensity changes to a point where if the clinical team that either is providing um, the chemotherapy or radiotherapy in together with the rest of the of the care team, so in consultation with the palliative care specialist, that should be a team-based decision. The best care is offered where there are interdisciplinary processes and uh, that are at play, where there's consultation between uh, a, a, a number of clinical uh, or treating physicians that consult on each other about the prognosis of the individual patient to make the best decision possible for the way forward. So it will change and evolve over time. In my view, there should be no time that a patient is told there's nothing more to do for you. Because that, uh, on its own, has negative connotations. As um, Sandler says, it's it's a change in intensity. So they 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 are running concurrently, one um, right up at the top, maximally, for instance, um, chemotherapy, with palliative care being introduced minimally in the beginning, and, and then the intensity of the palliative care as the the um, um, the, the modalities of treatment, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, reduce in intensity. So there is never nothing to offer the patient. So the, the wording, um, how we, we deal with the reduction in, in the curative other approaches and, and the increase in palliative care, we need to look at that, the, the wording. And as, as colleagues, as the team, as, as Sandler is saying, as the team, we need to use the correct wording that supports the patient. 
I mean, I, I, I hear you, uh, that, that you, you need to be sensitive, but at the same time, um, you need to be realistic about what is actually about to happen or preparing in a way the patient of the journey ahead. I can imagine that conversation, uh, to be easy. Where do you even start that conversation of palliation, uh, with a patient? Sonia, could I, could I reply to that one? Having treated some patients, many, many patients with, with chemotherapy and just wanting to say that that is in fact a very difficult conversation to have with people. I think what is important is that there is a, a journey so that it's not a once off discussion. One has to, and, and it's becoming more tricky now with new chemotherapy treatments that are really, um, for some patients able to deliver really very, very good results. And so I think we all, doctors and, and patients, hope that you might be that one patient who does particularly well. And that possibility is there. But I think if we don't include the other more likely probability that the disease over time will progress despite our treatments and that we need to kind of hope for the best but plan for the worst, then that conversation really can be devastating. But if you're able, and I think this is one of the big roles of palliative care, is to have ongoing conversations with patients about and really including their voice in the decision-making. And I think sometimes that's where, because of the way we've been trained, we go amiss. We say to patients, these are the options, these are the side effects, what do you want to do? As opposed to really also understanding from their perspective what their goals and values are, what trade-offs are they they prepared to make. Not every patient does want to live longer. There might be other things that are more important to them. And if we don't understand those things about a patient, and that's that can be an ongoing and, and quite a lengthy conversation sometimes, you are unable to make proper recommendations that really fit with a patient's goals and values. Um, and because, you know, medicine has advanced so far that there's always another thing to offer directed at the at the cancer but, but sometimes the, the more appropriate thing is really to do things that are directed at the at the patient and their symptoms and you know the whole the whole person and and that might not include chemotherapy so um so i, I think the important thing is that one needs to always in this journey with the patient hold both possibilities things are going well now i'm i'm glad for that and I hope it'll stay as long, you know, like that as long as possible. But we must remember that, um, you know, pl- we need to also consider that at some point things will change. So, so I think, um, and I, and I think this is where the team is important and where it's sometimes difficult for one oncologist to have to manage all of that, uh, becomes difficult and then including uh, other team members such as the palliative care clinician or a social worker in your team becomes very, helpful in 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 giving the best care to the patient but also from a personal clinician's perspective to be able to do this work which is quite tough sometimes disease is not static so it's evolving over time so it's not a once-off conversation it's a conversation that ought to be had throughout from day one the conversation about where are we uh, between the doctor and the patient in fact the clinical team and the patient, we ought, the patient ought to know what, where the disease is in terms of its stage, in terms of uh, the likely outcomes of what are the possible treatment options, 
what are the likely outcomes and, and Mark is, is very is being very honest and we ought to have more honest conversations about yes um we know that this drug is very good uh, it's um but what are the probabilities what are the chances that for me as an individual it will reach a likely outcome so it can go either way so we have to have those we can't have the one conversation that says if we give you drug A um as um as good as it may be we will get the the outcome that we hope for yes we are hopeful for the best outcome but at the same time what are the other alternatives that could happen even if with the best intention and with the best treatments so those conversations for me i think as the disease is dynamic the conversations have to also be dynamic so where are we as we going through the treatment after we've completed the treatment did we reach our goals so it, we have to be malleable um, with our patients and and also families have to expect that it should be part and parcel of their care that we discuss this on, on an ongoing basis because it's evolutionary. It's not static. It's not a once-off. There isn't a date where we say, okay, and, and I believe and, 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 and a lot of, of, of publications are, exist to, to confirm this that they, the moment we have the conversation because we did not reach the outcome that we were hoping for, it is too late. The conversation should be had upfront. We describe our goals of care. We agree on what, or, or on what would be a, a, an acceptable outcome. And taking patient preferences into account is very, is very important. And it doesn't mean if a patient wanted chemotherapy in the last three months and we, and we didn't get the best outcome, they will continue wanting more chemotherapy. That could, even if it's the same chemotherapy regimen, they can change that, they can change that decision at any one time. So if, they, if the patients and part of palliative care is to provide that ongoing support, you know, at an emotional level, like, you know, social level and spiritual level to say, what are we, where are we, are we still, are we still going in the right direction? What do we need to improve the quality of life? And I think for me, part of these conversations include the likes of uh, making choices up front. You know, um, I want, I want to use the term loosely, advanced directives. What is their role in describing those goals of therapy for patients whilst, if the, if the, I believe if this description of where we are and where we're going and what we aim for is very clear for the patients and their families, then the conversation about future might be easily managed if things don't turn out to be what we had hoped for. So we should have it on an ongoing basis and and then tailor the treatment depending on where the patient is because, as we said earlier, the intensity ought to change. So how do we increase the intensity depending on where we are. So if a patient, all they needed in, on, you know, six months ago was just pain medication and some, uh, psychological support that may be sufficient. But in six months time, they may need that pain medication, maybe much more intensified pain medication as well as, um, let's say home care. So how do we factor that in? And, um, if those choices and those discussions are not had up front, when the, the, the situation where the patient either loses consciousness, happens and nobody has ever conversed about that's a possibility it becomes actually i think i would feel as a as a, as a patient or as a family member very disempowered if i didn't know that it was a possibility and how would we manage it and what is the recommended intervention if that all if that situation i mean you can't plan for every eventuality but especially the common eventualities that clinicians know are likely to happen 
those have to be explicitly discussed and patients encouraged and, and, and counseled over these. And it's not a once-off conversation either. Even if, you know, we have the conversation, it can't happen over one day. I, I think cancer is a devastating diagnosis. We can't expect that a single conversation caters for all what we expect. It has to be reinforced and there has to be constant engagement. Are the patients still um, at goal or are they still comfortable? Is their quality of life still as best as we can offer? Dr. Mjongo, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned support because family is a very important support structure. How do you bring them in to be a part of that discussion or, or conversation uh, because you need to prepare them for the journey ahead? So I think um, maybe my, my colleagues who are right in the clinical space are, are even better place to answer. But to my thoughts about it is that in the beginning, at the, right at the beginning, the, the, the support structure, and, and uh, Margie spoke about social workers. Social workers are very important to understand what is your social environment? What is your support structure? We have to bring your support structure in because uh, we, we know that if, if even if you diagnose today and you look well, even if you are just getting adjuvant chemotherapy, in six weeks' time you may not look, not because of the cancer, but due to treatment. So what is your support structure that ensures that you are able to come back to treat to get more in, uh, infusional chemotherapy if that's all they are, you are getting? Because if we haven't established that as, as as treating teams, how do you expect the person who, for instance, lives alone, lives 45 kilometers from the treatment center when they are, you know, as weak as anything, they have dizzy spells to be able to drive themselves? So for me, uh, what I would say is the, the the support structure has to be established right up front we know who is around you, what their role is, and they also need counseling themselves because it's not easy to care for, for patients with such a devastating diagnosis. And we, we understand that actually even those people who are a support structure themselves might need, um, you know, a break from, from providing such intense support. So it, it, it is actually, um, a, a, a journey for everybody, the clinical team. The patient, the, the supporting team, I'm not talking about the clinical team now, I'm, so, I'm talking about the supporting team at home, your family, right up front, and we all walk through the journey. And I think for me, if we do that, then nobody gets surprised, and we are all in the same conversations, and we are transparent about our hopes, our wishes, our wants, I mean, not just from patient preference, but even from the clinical perspective. Everybody then, uh, when things take whatever turn, be it a positive or a, a downward turn, Everybody kind of has an understanding of what is happening and, you know, when do we need to go back to the doctor to ask for more, where we expecting that the nausea would be quite severe and what do we do if the nausea does come? You know, when do we call for an ambulance because the symptoms are much more than what, you know, was described. So I, w- I would put it that way. Uh, agreed. Um, uh, with the definition right from there, we say palliative care improves quality of life of the patient and the family. So the family is an integral part of the management process right from the beginning. It is, um, it's a team approach. It's a key member. However, many members of that family, they become a member of the team with the patient becoming the first member of our team, including all the other professionals. Um, I did want to add to to what um, um, Sandley and Maggie responded to earlier regarding the serious conversations, the, the conversations about the serious illness. 
And, and one of, of the things that we, we, we have to deal with and we have to grapple with is the training or lack thereof in palliative care. So uh, 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 they've both alluded to the journey. It's a process. It's a journey. It's not a once-off conversation to take patients to a point where they now understand that there may no longer be chemotherapy available. Um, that that'll make a difference to their illness. It is a journey. So somebody needs to walk with the patients and the family. That person needs to have the requisite training because that's not something that you can just do without having had the, 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 the appropriate training to do that. And in palliative care, that is an integral part of the training to be able to assist the patient and the family to define the goals of care and to be able to revisit that process because things change here. The condition changes, but so do the defined goals of care change in their heads. They may have wanted chemotherapy a month ago. They may have changed their mind um, in a month's time. So palliative care allows for that change. And we tend to... Uh, and uh, maybe I'm, I'm just making here a statement that I haven't um, scientifically proven, but we tend to expect people to have all the skills. So we may have, we may expect the oncologist to to know how to to navigate that route when they actually haven't been trained. This is where we need to work as a team so that the palliative care clinician can start these conversations perhaps at the diagnosis or at an appropriate point in in the progression of, of the disease so that the the distress that is associated with serious illness can be minimized. I think one of the most important um, components of supporting carers really is information. Um, you know, if you spend time with a family at home, for example, caring for a patient, um, not just about what's going on at the moment, but giving them a little bit of information around other things that might happen um, is so empowering. Um, you know, I've I've had I had someone this week say to me, and it was it it was quite a difficult symptom to manage, and she said, "But that's fine as long as I know. Then I then I know how if I can know how to support my husband, then then that's fine." So that information and spending time sharing that. Um, is I think an important part of, of care support. And being open as an oncologist or the medical part of the medical team, right? Being open to the patient and the family. So yeah. I think to that point, you know, I'm reminded of a, a, a story recently, in fact, um, that, uh, one of our members was, um, was confronted by. So a spouse of theirs had undergone treatment um, a couple of years ago and the outcomes of treatment went as they expected. So this spouse actually unfortunately um, was recently diagnosed themselves with a colorectal cancer. So, and what it seemed to me was because of a lack of discussion and um, engaging with the clinical team, this 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 um, widower, uh, very unfortunate uh, circumstances, is now looking at alternative therapies um, and spending exorbitant amounts of money trying to import um, very expensive treatments that uh, are not proven, 
Um, there's no rationale for them. But for me, uh, maybe I'm, 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 I'm just, you know, plotting the dots where they aren't. But how I looked at the situation and I assessed it for myself, uh, the conclusion that I could only draw was there was lack of support for this, uh, for this gentleman during his late uh, wife's treatment and therefore the, his expectations and the cause of the disease and the, and the outcomes were not aligned with his expectations. And therefore he believes uh, at this point when he's confronted by his own illness that he will do anything and everything irrespective of the likelihood of it providing any success. And even during this part, and it seems like, you know, when I looked at the questions that he was asking, there isn't support that is available to guide him and navigate. Because some of these questions happen, and um, my clinical colleagues will, will confirm this. These are not unique situations where patients are asking about alternative therapy that they've read about on Dr. Google or they've heard about from a a friend or a colleague or wherever that they might have found information from. But we ought to be comfortable enough to engage and educate them and uh, describe. So even with chemotherapy and radiotherapy, as evidence-based as it may be, it is clear that it will not work for everybody. Some of the best therapies, you know, with, um, I remember we looked at one of the more novel therapies a few years ago that was launched locally. Very good drug. But it, when it, it, when it worked, it worked fantastically. In fact, uh, there was, um, they still thought that actually it could reverse metastatic disease to be, uh, to remission or even to undetectable. These are immunotherapies in cancer and specifically in melanoma. But, when it was initially launched, the data was one in four patients, the likelihood of obtaining a benefit. So when you do get the benefit, the benefit is fantastic, but only one in four. So do we have those conversations with, uh, with our patients about these are, this is what we know. Maybe the science will evolve over time, but at this point, this is what we know. This is what we ought to expect. Should you benefit, we would expect a fantastic benefit. Should you not benefit? The likelihood is that you are you are not going to benefit if you look at just those odds. So three and four are not getting getting any benefit. So I'm I'm not always convinced that we are honest enough with our patients and uh, we know and also just even describing what will happen during the course of their treatment, so that they understand then what to do. As we said earlier, how do I manage the symptoms? Because some of these therapies, as fantastic as they are. The symptoms that they, they take you through during the treatment, um, you, it's quite debilitating. So you have to choose between, do I want to live with the symptoms of my disease or the symptoms that's caused by the actual treatment? But if we know what the goal is, what we expect, most people are willing to make an investment, but some people, and we have to accept that, may not be willing to make that investment. The, the mountain is too, is too high to climb. So how do we support them, even if they make those different choices? And how do we, up front, describe the possible journey. And I think that's really where palliative care comes in. Given what Dr. Mshongo has just spoken about, Dr. Fenter, is there any research into palliative care in cancer patients? Yes. In fact, um, since 2007, there's been a lot of uh, research on, on integrating palliative care and oncology care. So really having them run together at the same time. 
Um, and for example, one of the landmark trials was published in, in 2010 where they looked at patients with advanced lung cancer and they split them into two groups. One group received, uh, you know, the standard oncology care and the other group received standard oncology care and, um, and palliative care, um, which really implied, um, uh, consultations with a palliative care expert, uh, in the time of, of receiving their treatment. And they found that patients definitely had a significantly Im uh, improved quality of life and were less anxious and depressed, which I think is important because I think often the reason why doctors don't have these conversations is because we're, we're afraid of either taking away hope or of causing unnecessary anxiety and worry. You know, if things do go well, then why have we caused all this anxiety? But in fact, the, quite the opposite is shown to be, to be true. And in this particular trial, and I don't think that's what, that's not what they set out to do, but the patients who received palliative care even lived a little bit longer than those who didn't, which was, which was surprising. And I think the reason why they test checked for that was to make sure that patients, that we don't in fact take away life uh, expectancy from patients by offering them palliative care because intuitively people think, well, they're going to be saying yes less often to treatments. And so we're going to, not prolong their life as, as long as we might be able to, but quite the opposite was proven to be true as well. And, and patients in the group who received palliative care said yes, uh, didn't say, didn't access, um, aggressive treatments as, as often as those who didn't receive, um, palliative care. So, so with less treatments, kinder treatments, they have improved quality of life and, and, and they even lived a little bit longer. Not that that's the reason why we offer palliative care. So there's and, and there are lots of other trials who've shown shown similar results. So the big cancer organisations worldwide um, in the US and in Europe um, have all endorsed this as best practice uh, in their guidelines to offer patients palliative care alongside the treatments that are given to to the disease itself. Just to add to to what Maggie said, um, it's important to note that these major studies have been done overseas not in our country. And it's important that we have our own research, um, not only to, to, to sort of confirm what they have done and published, but also to look at, at areas of, of specific interest and, and reference to, to our setting. And we need, we do need funding and we need, um, a, a voice, um, to, to, to speak. Um, for 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 our local settings. And Dr. Mklonga, when you when you hear palliative care or palliation, immediately you're thinking terminal, and thereafter you're thinking loss of life, and then of course comes bereavement, and then the support to the family. So you're absolutely correct. Um, throughout the journey, we we're thinking about. From uh, Nosisa's area point, support, you know, improvement of quality of life right from the beginning. And we're thinking about, uh, I think a point I mentioned earlier as the disease evolves, be it it's worsening or improvement. How do we approach the changes in the, in the, in the clinical context of the individual patient and therefore giving appropriate support for the family and the patient? But also accepting that, um, Cancer is a devastating diagnosis and 
um, patients, uh, for some patients, it is diagnosed late and therefore the opportunity for a cure no longer exists. And they will, the disease progresses in with the best intention that the best treatments that are available on offer. For some patients, that is their journey and palliative care alongside treatment is part and parcel of that journey. But also accepting that when we get to that point where the prognosis is uh, or life expectation is much more reduced. So how do we along that journey then intensify the support, be it psychosocial, be it spiritual or be it physical uh, in terms of biological treatments that ought to be offered. But at the point of then the index patient, be it the demise or whatever the case might be, how do we also support the family through the bereavement process, because it doesn't end simply because the index uh, patient, the person who's undergoing treatment, has been deceased. There is people around that person who have been at labor to hoping for the best outcomes. That you know, going through the journey, they may not have been in the journey, in other words, receiving the chemotherapy or the radiotherapy, but they themselves have been walking along that uh, that path with the patient. And they've, they suffer a loss emotionally, physically, and, and otherwise. And part of that is that, uh, there are other consequences of a death. If you think of a breadwinner dying, uh, how does the family cope from that point onward? So we have to think about that whole journey, not just from the eyes of the, of the person going, undergoing treatment, but from the family's point of view around once the person has passed on, what support do they need? And also similarly, be it spiritual, be it psychosocial, and so and so on and so forth. And that journey has to go on. Um, I, I think from Discovery's point of view, we we would love um, to find our way. There are obviously certain constraints that we work within from a regulatory point of view, but I think we've tried to really think of this journey from the point of diagnosis, as as the two esteemed colleagues have, have said. So it may not be palliative care as one would think about a hospice bed um, that we start with. Uh, but from the date of diagnosis, we we have really tried to think about what are the general supportive mechanisms, so be it from biological, so pain medication, anti-nausea medication, that are just routine, and the consultations um, that have to be offered to patients. Um, and we trying to think, as the intensity increases, how do we then uh, support the patients then with either if there's preferences, uh, should they require a hospice admission or uh, being managed at home? How do we offer social services, psychological services, um, side by side with the active treatment? And when they make the choices not to undergo treatment, how do we support um, um, the patient at that point and continue? Because uh, we don't think it ought to be a choice that we make for our members, but the members with their treating teams and their families make the best decision. And our role is to simply support. And I think we have spoken a lot in, in other, in the other, se- in other series about what other discovery services we think about that actually plug into the space to really support. But I think in consultation, and I think we've worked, that's, uh, um, my joy here that working together with the clinicians, uh, we've learned a lot and we continue to learn. And I think to try and actually improve the patient's journey through survivorship and palliation and the family support through bereavement. 
just to add, um, it's important for for us as clinicians, but also from a, a funding perspective, to understand that bereavement doesn't start um, at the time of death. It starts at the time of diagnosis. And at the time of diagnosis, there's already loss. And, and that's where bereavement starts. The loss of health, the loss of um, income because the patient can't work. So the patient is in bereavement. And then there's family. So from a funding perspective, those services that support bereavement have to start right at the beginning. Um, there, there is just so much grieving uh, by the patient themselves, n- never mind the family. Um, it speaks again to the early introduction of palliative care to support that patient and the family with bereavement. We've o- quite often understood bereavement as being a process that starts once the patient is, has died, but it, it doesn't. It starts from the beginning. And I agree with you there because especially when you are a child and you're watching your parent who's too sick to attend, you know, your, your sporting meetings at, um, at school, there, there's loss of that quality time that you would have had with the parent. And the parent is grieving because they can no longer be the mother. They can't help their children. They're watching their children growing already and they're imagining their life after death already with the children. So there's a lot of grieving. There's a lot of bereavement during the life of the patient. Dr. Fanta, what, what resources are there for people to access that you would recommend? Uh, well, there's always Google. <laughs> um, and I think one of the um, websites that I have found helpful um, is the web- a website called getpalliativecare.org. Um, it is US based, unfortunately, but, but the, the principles remain the same. Um, and then there's the local HPCA website, um, uh, which, which might add some information. Um, so, so we're in the process, perhaps just to mention, it's going to take a little bit of time, but of a group of palliative care clinicians, um, in South Africa to try and consolidate, um, and then over time create websites where we have uh, people can access, you know, and find their local palliative care practitioner and, and on that, um, offer some information around, um, around what palliative care in fact is and isn't. That it is not only end of life care, but a, a lot more than that. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any other suggestions, Nosisa. No, Maggie. Um, I, I don't. Uh, and we, we're setting up because we are a new, um, entity really uh, we're a new entrant into the medical field so we're busy organizing ourselves to, to set up something where people can get easy access in the meantime you will just have to it's a word of mouth um, to contact individual practitioners um, across the country we are in desperate need of um, training more trained clinicians currently I think uh, that's why this podcast, for instance, becomes very critical because these are, there's a very, there's a paucity of knowledge that's available, especially in this African context. I think if you go to developed countries, you might find there's a lot more information. So I know 
for instance, in the U.S., uh, if you go to cancer.gov, um, you will find a lot of information on palliative care. The American Cancer Society uh, publishes quite a lot of information on palliative care in the U.K. as well. But uh, I think we are still very reliant on, um, you know, foreign um, information. Um, maybe to Anostisa's point that, that we need to develop our own research we need to publish our own research. And I think for me, maybe a point that I wanted to add to that question is around there are cultural differences. So if we, 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 we cannot ignore significant cultural differences. And, and I'm going to be, I'm going to please give me the leeway here to be a bit general, uh, to generalize in the, in the African communities, it is believed that we do everything, you know, for our patients until that, for our family members until the last. And, Palliative care not necessarily speaks against that, but also speaks about making the right choice for the patients that actually is likely to confer benefit. So in one of the other discussions we've had, it's about making, you know, balancing benefits versus harms. So when we speak about, you know, chemotherapy no longer providing a benefit, but providing harm. So if you think about our beliefs that actually, so long as there's chemotherapy that has not been tried in my my dad or my mother, we ought to try that. And it may not be the, the best decision for that patient because it's, it's no longer providing a benefit, but it's providing harm. And part of these conversations that ought to be had are around that. But we have no understanding because there's those cultural influences about treatment decisions for advanced illness in our context are not known. So there is a need for local research local guidelines, but uh, it's a gen, and I think uh, we are in, at, uh, locally, we are at infancy, and I've personally, I've enjoyed the uh, collaboration with the clinicians who are working very hard to be at the call phase and, um, and to just find solutions for our members, our society to improve and uh, widen the scope of palliative care and actually not call it or not see it as a by-the-way type of conversation, but a mainstream discipline that is part and parcel of every advanced illness that uh, or serious illness that our members, patients, uh, and families can be diagnosed with. And we should ex- what goes what standards of care can we expect? So I think to your point, we can. Uh, uh, I would love to see this podcast on Discovery's website, and I think we've also published some information on the cancer journey, which uh, on discovery.co.za that is very informative. So I would encourage our members and uh, broader community to go to Discovery to find more information and we'll probably be working with our team, our marketing team, to really improve the knowledge base around this. And we think of it as a social responsibility. I just want to say, if people are interested in, in fact, um, completing an advanced directive, on the HPCA website, there's a very nice document um, that's not your standard um, advanced directive. It, it does guide you um, to complete and maybe have a discussion in your family around what your wishes are for your health care and, and who you would uh, appoint as your health care proxy if you weren't able to make these decisions for yourself. Um, and, and so you can download that from the, the Hospice Palliative Care Association of South Africa's website and and, and maybe use that as a starting point also to start having this conversation with your doctor. If they're not the ones bringing it up, then perhaps patients can be the first mover in this, in this space.
I wanted to add that we welcome, as as palliative care practitioners, we welcome um, discoveries involvement and and their initiatives and and we are hoping that the conversations we are having are not going to be start and stop conversations, but are going to be ongoing conversations that that attempt to reach the larger majority of the the population of of our country. And key to this is going to be their involvement in the efforts to train more and more, um, more and more um, people in palliative care. And and that in, involves funding of such training as well as the research component of the development of palliative care in the country. You mentioned funding, Dr. Matsiliza. If I may ask, Dr. Msongo, what sort of resources are needed? It's, it's an ongoing commitment, um, and I, I don't think we would shy away from what we believe is a very important part of improving the, uh, the healthcare system in South Africa. As you know, Sonia, we've funded um, specialists in different fields of training uh, through the Discovery Foundation, and we will continue to do so. And I think we would welcome a conversation around how we could support training in palliative care medicine in South Africa. Um, probably it's not an answer I can provide off the cuff um, at this moment, but I think the conversation and uh, as we have been involved in other discussions, we certainly welcome. So in, in conclusion, Dr. Matsiliza, uh, palliation doesn't mean we've given up on you. It just means we are improving quality of life. Palliation does not mean we've given up on you. Palliation is the support to improve quality of life. And it starts from the beginning, from diagnosis, throughout the continuum of care of the patient, intensify as the disease progresses until it may be the only modality of care for that particular patient and family until the end. And... As Discovery, we are committed to supporting our members, our, our their families throughout the journey, and we will continue working with the uh, clinicians. And I think we've done um, exactly that over the years. We haven't, as I said before, we don't have all the answers, but I think we are very committed. And I, I'm quite excited to be doing this, and I think um, we will probably continue doing more, and we will we will be there in terms of funding, for patients as well as for training of specialists. I think that's my last comment on that. Dr. Matsiliza, Dr. Mshongo, Dr. Fenter, thank you so much for explaining this highly sensitive but highly relevant topic so well. Let's hope this field gains more and more traction in South Africa. We've been talking all about palliative care and its key role in preserving a patient's quality of life throughout a cancer journey. To listen to all the episodes in our 10-part oncology podcast series, go to discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts, all brought to you by Discovery. This is cliffcentral.com.